Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. It is eternally true. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So we give our attention this morning to the events immediately following the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, at the very core of the Christian faith is Jesus' bodily resurrection. And on this day each year, we fix our minds on the resurrection. Indeed, every, every Lord's Day, we're thinking of the resurrection. So the central doctrine is the, rex, is the resurrection. That, and if you deny that Doctrine. If you deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus, then you're a heretic and not a Christian. And you remain in your sins. And the, the Holy Spirit tells us very clearly in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right, two very simple things there. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right, that Jesus is God over all things. He is Lord. He is the one who defines us, not us, him. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Believing in your heart within, right, in your mind, in your heart, inwardly, believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Scripture says you will be saved. If you do not believe those things, that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus rose from the dead, then you can make the assumption that you will not be saved. Um, God the Father is jealous that we would honor his Son. And those who do not honor his Son, he deals with later. And elsewhere, the Holy Spirit teaches us that the resurrection is absolutely central to the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15 is a, is a chapter that addresses the resurrection. And it says this, Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are found, even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He said that twice now. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. We're of all men most to be pitied. Why? Because we've missed out on our fun. We've delayed our pleasures until the, the afterlife. And if Christ hasn't been raised then, the, raised, then the afterlife is nothing or it is just pain. And so the first 12 verses of the last chapter of Luke record for us how the, disciple, the, the disciples of Jesus came to understand his resurrection from the dead. You have to remember that Jesus had been teaching them that he would die and that three days later he would rise again, but they didn't get it. They didn't fully understand what he was saying to them when he said those things. Remember Luke eighteen thirty-one to 34. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. And then this little verse, but the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Three times it says there, they didn't get what was going on. It's quite astonishing thing that they would not understand what is central to the history of redemption. So there's a very real sense that these disciples who show up to the grave of Jesus are really just taking things in as they happen in this passage. But as those things happen, they remember what Jesus said and, and they believe and things start to click. Right? And subsequent to these events, we see the apostles go out to the whole world preaching about the resurrection. Look at the first uh, sermon recorded in the book of Acts. It's all about the resurrection. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. That's what Peter says in Acts 2. This Jesus God raised up again. Now one last uh, point before we work through the passage. The death of Jesus is necessary and important and central. The death of Jesus is central. But without his resurrection, his death would have been disastrous. Right? Here's what Calvin, Calvin, John Calvin says about that. He says, seeing that in the cross, death and burial of Christ, nothing but weakness appears. Faith must go beyond all these in order that it may be provided with full strength. Hence, although in his death we have an effectual completion of salvation, because by it we are reconciled to God, 
Satisfaction is given to his justice. The curse is removed. The penalty is paid. Still, it is not by his death, but by his resurrection that we are said to be begotten again to a living hope. Because as he, by rising again, became victorious over death, so the victory of our faith consists only in his resurrection. He goes on, he says, Our salvation thus must be divided between the death and the resurrection of Christ. By the former, sins are abolished and death is annihilated. By the latter, righteousness is restored and life is revived. And so, amen. I mean, do you see... Do you see that the resurrection is central? The centrality of the resurrection is reflected in the very fact that we meet together on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. We do that all through the year. That is why we do that. Luke mentions that right that, that issue right from the start. Notice the first words of our passage, but on the first day of the week at early dawn. Right? Now, the women who had been present at Jesus' crucifixion, the women who were present at Jesus' crucifixion while the apostles were, were away, except for John, after resting on their Sabbath day, Saturday, go to the tomb, and they, they go just to do something um, to honor Jesus' body. They bring spices. They're going to... Um, spice that dead body. That in itself shows their love for Christ. They want to bless his body even while dead. But when they arrive, things are not as they expected. The stone is rolled away from the tomb, and most significantly, the body of Jesus isn't there. The body of Jesus is gone. They expect to see a lifeless body, but instead they get no body at all. Nothing there. When things don't meet our expectations, um, we're left scratching our heads, and, and that's what happens to those who, who went there to find Jesus' body. It says, while they were perplexed about this. It's just like, wait, what is going on here? They're perplexed. I would imagine they're anxious. You know, they, they, um, they're going to do this good deed. They've lost one that they they truly love and they're anxious about what happens. They may have been fearful that the Romans had dishonored the body of Jesus somehow. And then the unexpected goes up another level, right? The two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Of course, these are not men, but they are angels who appear as men. John 20 says of these two beings that they were angels. We so easily forget about the work and ministry of angels. Um, for Jesus, for Jesus, the ministry of angels was of great comfort. They come when Jesus is suffering. Um, and as if commanded by the Father to give relief to the Son of God in the midst of this grueling work of redemption. When the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan was complete, who ministered to Jesus? The angels come and minister to Jesus. Mark 1.13 says, And Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. And then remember, remember when Jesus agonizes in the Garden of Gethsemane. Immediately after Jesus asks for the Father to remove the cup from him, an angel comes and ministers to Jesus. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening 
him. Jesus was strengthened by the angel, the angel's ministry. And not only did they minister to Jesus, right, but they announced, they were there at the, the important moments. The angels announced Jesus' birth. And here, what are they announcing? They're announcing his resurrection. So they, the angels get to announce both the incarnation and the resurrection. And the angels speak to the women, the women who are there. And the significance of these words is incredible. After all of the humiliating work that Jesus had done, after being born of a woman, God born through a woman he created, after all the suffering of the Son of God, hanging from a tree, bleeding, dying, after the mocking that Jesus went through at the trial, after 30 years of, of, of God living in obscurity, right? after three years of suffering with unbelief all around him, the, and, and the unbelief of the priests and the rulers of the temple, after dying, we now get these incredible words of victory, right? Everything has pointed toward this moment. If we left... Um, you know, if we left this to cinematographers of today, these, these words would, um, the, the, you know, all the music would reach to these words and stop, and only the angel would speak. And you'd be hanging on these words. You'd just be waiting for what was going to be said. But this isn't make-believe. This is real life. And the angel said this to the women, and it is announced it is announcement that everything has changed, that Jesus has changed the course of history, that Jesus has claimed the victory, not simply isn't over an enemy of, of um, material things, but an enemy uh, called death. Why, they say, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. You've come here seeking a dead body, you're looking for, you should be looking for a living body. Now, there are certainly things the Holy Spirit has recorded in Scripture that stand out. And these two sentences, I think, may be unmatched in their impact. I mean, what, what can we say about them? Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. I mean, if you don't get a sense of their magnitude, of their gravity, of their glory, I'm, I'm not sure I can can add very much. If these words don't resonate and, and um, resonate through your soul, I fear you remain like the apostles before this point. The meaning of this statement is hidden from you. It's hidden. But not simply the meaning of the statement is hidden, but the very glory of the one Jesus Christ is hidden from you. You know, I, I so often see people get um, blinded by the minutia of of even their study of Scripture, that they leave off the, the big things, the simple statements, the things that uh, any child can understand. And, and when you get caught up in the minutiae, the joy of your salvation is destroyed. I'm not telling you not to study, but I'm telling you that, the, that you know, excessive devotion to books is wearying to the soul. Um, You'd be better off putting down the book and spending your, spending your day rejoicing right, about this statement. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Right? We should just 
set our minds on that and dance, right? And rejoice. It's simple. It's, it's easy to understand. He's not here. He's not here, right? It's stupendous glory. May God give us joy in this salvation, not getting caught up in all the minutiae and all the, the, the excesses and the corners of Scripture and leave off just the simple joy of he died and he lives. He died and he lives. Ryle, J.C. Ryle writes, Above all, the resurrection of Christ ought to fill our hearts with a joyful sense of the fullness of gospel salvation. Who is he that shall condemn us? Our great surety has not only died, but he has risen again. He has gone to prison for us, and he's come forth triumphantly after atoning for our sins. The payment he made for us has been accepted. The work of satisfaction has been perfectly accomplished. No wonder that St. Peter exclaims, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you have hope in something else. And, and that is why you know, the contemplation of this man, this God-man Jesus Christ rising from the dead does not satisfy you for long. You hope in a bit more money. You hope in a relationship. You hope in, a, in, in this or that um, philosophical thought. But Christian, that, that is why your hope is not lively. If your hope is firmly in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your hope will be lively. Right? It, it's not going to ebb and flow according to the ups and downs of this broken world. It will be lively because it is finished. God has done it. And Jesus has not only risen, he's ascended to the Father and is seated to the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There's nothing else worth knowing. There's nothing else worth knowing. There's nothing else that means anything. All wisdom is like a drop in the bucket to knowing, receiving, and resting in the fact of Jesus' resurrection. The Son of God died, and he rose again from the dead. Now, the angels not only announce Jesus' resurrection, but they tell the women that they should, they should have seen this coming. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they're like, oh yeah, he did say that, didn't he? Now, of course, we know that spiritual truths must be revealed to those who will come to understand them. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. That even holds true with these women. And the apostles, right, who heard what was going to come to pass from the very mouth of Jesus, even still understanding and ultimately faith, had to be given to them. Had to be given to them as a gift. And it appears now that that gift has been given to them, and in response to Jesus' knowledge, uh, to, the, to the knowledge of Jesus, 
and his resurrection from the dead, what do they do? They report. They talk about it. They just go and report. They run back to those who would like to know of such glory, the eleven and the rest, it says in verse 9. And then we find out who it is, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, not Jesus' mother, but James the less, and other women. Uh, Calvin refers to these, these, as, these women as apostles to the apostles. Right? They are the sent ones to the sent ones. They are the apostles to the apostles. They're given the immense privilege of announcing Jesus' resurrection to Jesus' main men. And so the, the announcement of Jesus' resurrection goes out through these women. And what kind of reception do they receive? Um, this is world-altering, this is paradigm-shifting, this is like all Jesus has been pointing toward, this is what all the shadows of the Old Testament point toward, and and they go, and and they're excited, and they're rejoicing, and they go back and say um, that Jesus rose from the dead, and here's what they respond. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. You're crazy. What are you talking about, Marys? Uh, Many of the commentators remark that this makes the truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus all the more sure. Right? That they at first think it's nonsense, but then they go and preach it. Right? His resurrection, they, they, they go and preach about his resurrection everywhere they go. It appears they did not at all expect Jesus to rise, but then they go about the world proclaiming it. It's worth pointing out that um, we remember this passage from another gospel, John's gospel. And in that passage, it's not just Peter that goes to the tomb, but Peter and John. Why Luke only reports Peter, I don't know. But nonetheless, what he's written still remains true. He just decides to leave John out of the mix. Um, Though many would respond to the words of the women uh, calling them nonsense, Peter... Peter's the one who's, who decides to check it out. Peter gets up, checks out things on his own. He runs to the tomb. He looks in. He sees the linen lying there, which in itself is a confirmation of the resurrection. A stolen body would have been unwrapped. wouldn't have been unwrapped. It would have been taken, right? And, he, and so he, it says he goes to his home. He goes home marveling at what had happened. We don't know exactly what he's thinking, but he goes home and he's just like, whoa, what is going on? The report of these events in John 20 also states that after they looked in the tomb, they went to their own homes. It's, it's, it's quite peculiar and ordinary, isn't it? The veil is slowly being lifted from their eyes. They're marveling, mulling over, meditating on all that's going on, and they just head home. Um, perhaps even... Uh, still, things haven't yet sunk in for the apostles. They're trying to figure it out. And it was not until Jesus stands in their midst and, and breathed on them that they truly came to understand what had happened. And, and looking ahead, that is just what we find. Luke twenty four forty four says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, then he opened their minds to understand Scripture. 
And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Now what in the end can we say about such things? I think it's important for us to remember that um, Christianity is not merely a religion of facts. Um, The Apostle Peter got a lot right about Jesus. He understood that he was the Messiah. He confessed that he was the Son of God. He recognized and was troubled with his own sinfulness when he was in the presence of Jesus. He committed Um, He committed to Jesus and followed him through those three years, and yet seeing miracles, hearing Jesus preach, learning about him did not lead to what was necessary to faith, believing that he rose from the dead until the Spirit came upon him. So many false conversions are made when someone comes to Jesus for less than what Jesus truly is. So many people come to Jesus because they like some element of Jesus or they like some element of the scriptures. They've lived through an awful existence. And so when Jesus says, I'm gentle, it gives them, it's what they want to hear. It gives them encouragement. They're lonely. And Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And it it somehow encourages them or so they think. But the Christian faith is not one of fact alone, but it's supernatural. Right? A man must be born again by the Spirit. His mind must be illumined by the Spirit. He must be made alive. And then, and only then, will the miracle of a dead man rising make sense and be easily accepted. So many people follow Jesus because they haven't, because they haven't thought about the resurrection. So many people have been told it's perfectly reasonable to follow Jesus and deny the miracle of the resurrection. So many Reformed Presbyterians have an intellectual faith, and, and they believe that that intellectual faith is sufficient for salvation, and they will not tolerate the unreasonableness of miracles. Right? But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. It's funny, isn't it, that people question all the miracles of Scripture. But when it comes to Jesus, they simply often accept most things. Right? Some don't accept that, that Jesus was able to make a blind man see, but then they tacitly or quietly accept the, G, the miracle of Jesus' virgin birth, the very fact that he was God and he became man, and that he rose from the dead. Right? Or perhaps those... Those who reject the little miracles don't accept the larger miracles either. How could one reject the little, these, these little things, these um, healings, fire from heaven, manna, um, the healing of a man born blind, right? And then accept the little, the, the larger miracles, the son of God's birth, death, and resurrection from the dead. I mean, at its root, the Christian faith is one where the acceptance of the supernatural, of God breaking into nature, is fundamental. That's why the Apostle Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But don't belittle what it means to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What that means is you believe the God-man died 
and then came back to life. That is a, a paradigm-shifting belief. A man can't hold to that and be an evolutionist. A man cannot hold to that and be a naturalist. You can't hold to that and be a materialist. Right? You can't hold to that and be anything but a Christian. Really. If one holds to that belief, he is either in the kingdom or not far from it. Right? To come to terms with the historical reality of Jesus rising from the dead is to view all of history and all of life and all of death through, through the lens of the supernatural. And that belief is not simply a mystic uh, sort of belief in the weird, right? which will sweep up a lot of people, but a firm belief in a in historical event, a, a supernatural event, right? It's a firm belief in the historical resurrection of Christ done by God the Father. Um, once you come to terms with that, then you have left behind every other explanation for your existence and for the way the world works. I often think that we should just begin our witnessing by saying that we believe a man rose from the dead. Just cut right to right to the central point. I believe a man rose from the dead. He was dead, then he was alive. Right? Why? Because that resurrection, just like Jesus' birth, changed everything. And to believe that removes us from all other simplistic explanations for the why and what of our lives. Do a search in the book of Acts on the words dead and arose. And you'll find that in almost all the sermons by Peter and Paul, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the central point of the sermon. Um, and it's interesting how they often put it, just by mentioning that God has given proof to you through the resurrection of a dead man. They just say that he was dead and then he was alive, this man. Here's one example from Paul's sermon at the Areopagus. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He's given you all the proof you need. He's given you that proof of raising Jesus from the dead. And so the resurrection of Jesus and our belief in it is central, is central to the redemptive work of God and our participation in that redemptive work. Right? Deny the resurrection and you've denied all of Scripture. If, this, if the resurrection has not occurred, nothing has changed. Right? As we thought about on Friday, the death of Christ accomplished our redemption, but without the resurrection, we would not know newness of life. The death and propitiation of Christ is absolutely essential. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. But the death of Christ without the resurrection would make salvation incomplete. It would make it impossible to, plot, to apply to us. For those who have the Spirit, right, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is everything. It is every bit of their hope. It is the very centerpiece of their lives. It is the one thing upon which everything else hangs. Because Jesus conquered death, 
and rose from death, you too will rise again if you believe. Jesus' resurrection changed everything, and that's the simple gospel. Do you believe? Do you believe? Or is it too much for you to believe a man died and came back to life? That's too much for many people. So may the Spirit of God open your eyes to the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May you rest in him, confessing with your mouth that he is Lord and believing in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you. We thank you for the powerful work of Jesus Christ in defeating death. We thank you that he has risen, that all has been changed, that we have been changed, that the world has been changed, that redemption has been accomplished, that newness of life has come. Father, we pray, we pray that our minds would be set on that, that our minds would be thankful for how all the shadows and all, all that preceded Jesus has been fulfilled in him. Father, and that he has shed his blood for our forgiveness and he has risen from the dead for our new lives. Father, I pray that, that we would be thankful every day of our lives, that we would wake up each morning thinking about Jesus risen from the dead. And that we would remember and rejoice that we will follow in his train, that we will go as he has gone because of our faith given to us as a gift. Lord, we rejoice in you and we praise your holy name. Amen.